Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I'd like to think I'd have the guts to resign rather than enable the massacre <laughs> of innocence. I also host a podcast about social justice and problematic relationships called With Friends Like These. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I have a mixture of fear and excitement coming to the end of season five of The Expanse. More about both of those emotions later on in the podcast. Yes, before we get into our emotional sharing, Dan, I think we need a recap of the episode. Will you provide us with a recap of the episode? I will be happy to. Why don't we start on the planet we're currently residing on, uh, planet Earth. The Baltimore gang has arrived at Lake Winnipesaukee. If you recall from the previous episodes, the plan is to go to a fancy house there where presumably they have a fancy suborbital shuttle that they can escape from Earth. When they get to a house there, they do find the shuttle. But they also find reactor trouble. Essentially, they find a a shuttle that is not working terribly well. And they also find plenty of off-season staff uh, and off-season private security. They basically make nice with the off-season staff, even though Eric wants to waste everyone. Clarissa does not. And uh, Amos essentially, uh, with a devil on one side and an angel on the right, uh, finally chooses uh, <laughs> chooses uh, Clarissa's side and essentially uh, has found his Holden substitute, as it were. So they don't kill anyone. They are cooperating with the, the wait staff. They're telling them that they can escape with the shuttle. They manage to forestall private security from appropriating uh, any of their material or so forth. However, there is a firefight just as they fix the shuttle in which they barely escape with their lives uh, and several members of Eric's sort of Baltimore gang are shot. Anna, my one thought, well, I have several thoughts about this whole sequence, <laughs> but but the, the smallest thought I had was, is this the last time that uh, Amos sees Earth? Uh, Dan, I know a little bit about the arc that Amos travels. Uh, as a reader of the books. And yes. as a reader of the books. And I'm just going to say... I suspect it is the last time that Amos sees Earth. That is what I. Think. I will say the way that re- I have thoughts. The, the way that was shot made me is why I asked that because like it, 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 when they finally escape and like you see Amos looking at Earth, it's like yeah, that seems like a goodbye shot to me. It does, and you know, credit to uh, West Chatham again. Like it's a subtle shot mm-hmm. of his face, and I think. What we see there is something that this plot line has been about, which is Amos kind of coming to terms with his past and kind of rewriting some of it to not have been, I mean, it was scarring, he healed from it, he still has trauma, but he's made some peace also. Yes. And I think that that we see that, um, that happens for a few characters. I have many thoughts about this. Would you like to save them for the IR part portion there, of there are this some of them uh, podcast? That, there are some of them that I think we should save for the IR portion, but some of them we can get to now. Like, you know, okay. we'll, we'll shoot. Like, what, what was the question that you had? Well, I will just point out Pinkwater. Get it? <laughs> get it? Yes. For people that don't get it, it, I believe it to be a reference to the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which was also kind of a private militia of sorts at the turn of the century. And then uh, Blackwater, which, of course, is a more infamous private security firm uh, that we all know about. So Props to you. That I is did, what I think is going on with, with Pinkerton. Right. I got the Blackwater reference. It did not occur to me that Pinkerton would have been the other uh, half of that portmanteau. So uh, so well done on your part there. But yes, the, the name of the- Actually, and Pinkerton is especially infamous for uh, suppressing labor uprisings, which right. is something that, you know- uh, you could see in this particular episode there is some class stuff right and just happening. to be clear pinkwater is the name of the private security folks that uh, come <laughs> right, by right. if you're listening to this you probably realize yeah. that but uh, just you know just in case <laughs> if this is your very first time listening welcome and by the way let's tell you what pinkwater is <laughs> okay i have a few things one mm-hmm. did no one else think of this if there's just a bunch of like suborbital shuttles like sitting around unused at this lake like it seems to me people might have taken them you know and that's just not even mentioned okay so like this one i found they 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 actually they posit that this one hasn't been taken because it's broken broken, right yeah so that explains that but i feel like eh, you know maybe someone else would have thought of this i think you're correct um on the other hand there were I guess I would have two responses to this, which this was not something that I thought was a terrible stretch. The first is I got the impression that there weren't a lot of shuttles left on that island. So in very, in fact, 
it's highly likely that people were leaving. But the other thing is, is that presumably, even if you launch the shuttle, you got to be able to fly it. And the impression I got is right. that being a pilot is still a relatively scarce resource, uh, a relatively high value added skill. And and I actually think I can make this more interesting than just a discussion of whether or not things are realistic, yeah. which is to say this episode does have class commentary in it, mm. very much so, mm-hmm. in terms of the off-season staff being abandoned yeah. by the rich people that own these houses, and also the difference between, like, having money and having skills, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, everyone else at this, you know, location, even the Pinkwater guys have skills and do labor, you know, the people that offer nothing to society except their wealth, which some people would say is enough, (laughs) (laughs) have skedaddled, like just gone. And I think there's a sort of fun irony. And also, I think a knowing wink in the fact that it's Clarissa that knows how to fly this thing, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Like the one because she's she comes from money. Yes. But she's the one who has the skill. That's true. And the, the necessary skill. I will also say that I, I don't know why exactly, but I loved the scene where they were all having dinner just because of the way it was shot, where it was very clear that the wait staff had literally set it up as if it was like a nice banquet kind of thing, even though they're relying on their emergency gear. And, and you know, clearly like the Eric's folks in the Baltimore gang are like, oh, this is pretty swanky. OK, you know, I can deal with this. I have more to say about that, yes. but we will save it for my discussion of themes. Right. All right. Let us leave Earth, much like everyone else's. Yes. So as much as everyone else is trying to get off, we will yeah. go to the Rossi and the Screaming Firehawk, a.k.a. the Razorback. Essentially, there is a rapid series of cuts here because everyone has gotten Naomi's altered message from the Chetsumoka, and everyone is trying to interpret what Naomi's message is. Alex thinks that there's no way it can possibly be a coincidence, and perhaps the most important part of this entire sequence is that thankfully Holden is now out of his lacrosse suit. So... <laughs> looks a little He more... looks a little less silly, yes, it's true. Yes, he looks, yeah. a, little bit, uh, looks yeah. a little bit more normal. I, it, it's an interesting point that he's now out of it. Otherwise, we don't really see much from either the Rossi or uh, the Screaming Firehawk, as it were. If you were listening to this episode, you're probably a super fan and don't need Screaming Firehawk explained, but I will enjoy explaining the name Screaming Firehawk, which has actually come up earlier, but it plays an important part in this particular episode because we see it mm-hmm. on the screen and when Naomi's like, uh, you know, MacGyvering her, her viewfinder. Yes. Screaming Firehawk was one of the names that the crew brainstormed when they appropriated the Rosnate, which was originally named the Tachi, and it is Alex's idea, and everyone groans and rolls their <laughs> eyes. I am quite sure that he was thinking about that reaction <laughs> when he had to rename the Razorback for, I guess, like security purposes. What was the... If memory um, serves, when he earlier this season, when he's when he's taking the, the Razorback to Mars, it was clear that Martian ground control did not like the fact that it was called something else. And so, I, he, you know, he comes up with that name. He finally, since no one's around, he actually gets to name it what he wants to finally. It's sort of like him getting to go to the cowboy bar. Exactly. Like, he's just like, all right, fine. I finally get to do this. Yes. Okay. The one final thing. Oh, actually, a couple of things I want to add. We have talked about the way that the show kind of hand waves away concerns about fake news and misinformation. Mm-hmm. Like, they have this thing where um, transmissions basically have, like, PGP kind of thing to them, like where you, you everyone has a, has a specific key, I think. I think that's sort of implied. Right. You know, that there's some way of verifying transmissions Mm -hmm. until there's not. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is important. This is important that things can be faked. And I'm 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 feeling like Holden was faked earlier, too. Yes, there was. But I still have questions. But I still kind of wonder about that. No, the Holden. Well, Holden was faked, if memory serves, because. Didn't Monica's cameraman, like, you know, record stuff and then digitally alter or, like, edit it so that it it it, it said something somewhat different yeah. from what he was supposed to say? So, in other words, that might be slightly different in that it was actually Holden who said what he said, but obviously the editing made it seem like he was saying right. something different. And this is obviously not very important, yeah. but it's something that interests me as someone who cares about misinformation right here, right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The other thing I want to say is that it's 
I want to believe that the show does not waste dialogue, right? Right. So that most pieces of dialogue come into play, like the information transmitted will come into play later. So it's sort of casually mentioned, we don't have a lot of fuel. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to assume that (laughs) that's Chekhov's lack of fuel. Yeah. (laughs) As you say, one of the things I do like about the show is the show has a belter philosophy to even the throwaway stuff. There is no throwaway stuff in this show. Um, And so you're right. right. I suspect that it's going to come up again. So let us continue our journey through the system. To Luna. So we go perhaps. to Luna in a section I have... So much IR yes. on Luna. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> this sequence I have entitled, Avasarala is done with the whataboutism. There is a new memorial now uh, on Luna for victims of Marco Onaris' attack. It is a lovely memorial. We will talk about this more a little bit later. As Avasarala is looking at the names and I think contemplating whether to add her husband Arjun to it, she discovers that Palace Station was in fact destroyed, in part on clearly Delgado's recommendation from uh, the previous episode. There is a subsequent National Security Council meeting or a Security Council meeting in which there is a debate about whether or not they're going to expand, as Pastor put it, the Palace Initiative. And I have so many thoughts about that name. But <laughs> but uh, Avasarala basic there is a there is a serious debate about whether or not this is the right course of action. Avasarala basically argues that that Marco is an extremist and says uh, that any further action along the lines of Palace will simply radicalize the belt further you know, finally admits and we finally learn that Arjun is actually dead, even though we had suspected about this. Delgado talks about hitting Ceres Station, which would lead to the deaths of, of millions, including hundreds of thousands of children. And this, we learn, is the line that Avasarallo cannot cross. She she stands up, she resigns uh, in protest, which surprisingly triggers multiple resignations. In fact, it seems like every civilian around that Security Council table walks away. As Avasarala is at the monument and finally does add Arjun's name to that monument, a cabinet official who is a military official uh, comes over to tell her that Pastor will lose a vote of no confidence. Avasarala worries that this is a coup, but the general says, no, 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 the other cabinet officials just thought you would listen to me as a, a straight shooter. Will you take over? She agrees and then uh, pops into Delgado's office um, and asks him to stay on. And that's pretty much how that uh, sequence ends, although we do finally learn the end of the joke that had been told much, much earlier. So. Yes. <laughs> we can talk about all this. Um, Anna, I am happy that Avasarala is back in charge. I have to say, given that he was only on for three episodes, Pastor really took quite a turn and an unexpected one as far as I was concerned. But do you agree with her political assessment of the belt? Well, Dan, this this is so much IR. Um, I believe we're going to have to like hold a lot of this discussion. Um, I kind of want to keep our discussion here maybe to the superficial stuff. Oh, okay. So one a very superficial thing is I think this is the first time we've seen her in pants. <laughs> Am I wrong? Um, like she usually wears saris. Like I mean, in like, I would I would I say like... in this season it's definitely the first time we've seen her in pants. We've seen okay. her in pants before. Right. I mean, there, she looks amazing. Oh, that's, that's... Like she should wear pants more often because I think she really rocks the silk pants. Let's just be blunt here. Shora Agdashulu rocks everything she wears, and really, like, I'm not going to. Yeah, she's, yeah amazing. she's amazing. The memorial, I found very affecting. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, so like the first time I saw it, I was just like, "Oh, that's you know, I see that they what they are doing right. here." When she adds Arjun's name, mm-hmm. I teared up, oh. and I would say that's a testament to her acting. <laughs> more than anything else um it's obviously kind of a pivotal thing for her to come to terms with that i have so many questions about the national security council thing that we will save for our ir right yes obviously but sort of having to do with the sides that are taken in the national security council i found delgado's joke really racist (laughs) like it sort of says something about him maybe no i think that is a is a safe statement to say that is a racist joke and let's face it there those jokes do exist in i would i would argue to some extent military cultures um and for that matter in civilian cultures what i liked i will say this it was a very nice acting moment by the the actor who plays delgado because he tells the joke and then props to both the show and the actor where there's this sort of just 
awkward pause after he tells the joke where it's clear Officer Ali ain't laughing and where even he sort of realizes, yeah, that used to be funnier. And it sort of indicates... And while I think that Delgado means that in the sense of it used to be funnier because we didn't take to have to take the belters seriously, I also think that it has the double meaning of it also used to be funnier back when racism was okay. Yeah. And I think it, it just helps delineate once again, like sort of where Avasarala has come, mm-hmm. you know, like I think she may have life laughed at that at some point, yeah. you know, the show opens with her torturing a belter. So, and I think that's really important to remember right. here, especially kind of given the evolution that's shown just in this season. Yes, agreed. There is a lot more going on here, but we will discuss that in the IR source portion of the podcast. We now move to the DeWalt. Uh, I know there are other ships, but the DeWalt is the only one that I can remember the name of in Drummer's Little Faction. <laughs> uh, but on uh, drum- the, the DeWalt, Corral tells Oksana to keep secrets from Drummer. Basically, Corral acknowledges that Naomi might well be alive. Oksana thinks that obviously Drummer needs to know this, and Corral tells Oksana, do not do that. Marco then uh, sends an order to Drummer to destroy the Rossi, and Drummer cannot quite piece together the logic of that order. As she is sort of puzzling this and, and sharing words with Corral right after that, Oksana then goes and asks Drummer for her gun, which Drummer does give her, although she's a little bit puzzled by it. And then finally, Drummer just confronts Oksana and wants to know what the fuck is going on, because clearly something is going on, at which point Oksana spills the beans, says there is a chance Naomi might be alive, and we then, you know, that is the end of that sequence. Anna, I'm not going to lie, I'm not entirely sure I understand Oksana's thinking or a lot of the plot on the DeWalt. I don't get it. In other words... The way I would put it is that Oksana is acting like she has no choice but to honor Corral's wishes and not tell Drummer what the hell is going on. And I don't get the logic of that. I feel like everything on the DeWalt this season has been a way to showcase Drummer's arc. Mm -hmm. But none of it makes sense to me now. Like, just I'm just completely baffled. Like, I assume we have much more literally a Chekhov's gun in the situation (laughs) where Oksana takes Drummer's gun. At first, I was like, so is she just going to straight up shoot Kural? Like, is this just going to be like, I mean, because that's one solution or not a solution, but that's one action you could It's one obvious possible action. Although I would also add that there was no indication before Oksana asked her of this that Drummer was going to do that. I mean, we saw Drummer reaching for her gun in the previous episode when she was in Yeah, or that it matters. Yes, exactly. Right. Or that it matters whether or not Drummer has a gun, because like Belters are pretty much armed, I think. Like this isn't this is a they are in a war footing, you know, on this ship. So I would just expect like people are armed. Like also this is that seems. And so this is Kamina Drummer we are talking about. Okay, (laughs) if Kamina Drummer wants to kill someone, she's going to kill someone. And you would think that Oksana knew that. I agree. So I just was completely baffled by all of this. I felt like the only thing that really made sense was Drummer figuring out that Marco's sending them on some kind of wild goose chase, which actually it just occurred to me what could be the ulterior motive besides killing Naomi, which is I don't think Marco trusts Kamina. You know, right? And, like, and, I think he would. And to be fair, I think that he proper. would be just yeah. fine with that. Right. I think he would be just fine with, like, somehow getting Corral off mm-hmm. and wasting the whole ship. Like, I don't think that would bother him. Right. <laughs> like, if, especially if Corral, like, communicates to him, I don't think we can trust these people. Like, I sense. Anyway, I'm making it make sense. Yeah. I feel a rare misstep for this show, or maybe it will all come together. I don't know. Let's move yes. on. We go to the Chetsumoka, which we only see a couple of times. Naomi is drinking space ice to stay alive, uh, essentially going into the vacuum cold of space to get the ice crystals and then comes back and, and drinks them. She's continuing to tinker with the ship, manages to get a helmet to work that has some degree of radar on it, sees that the screaming Firehawk is coming, seems to devise a plan, and scene. That was pretty much it. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure she had any dialogue in this uh, episode. Oh, no, 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 there is no dialogue. Yeah. Um, no quotes to pull for our, our theme section. I'm getting just a tiny bit impatient here. <laughs> like, even though this is the sequence that I kept on saying I was looking forward to. I know, to, like you, I've, been, you know? I've been looking forward to this I kept saying, like, this was going to be really exciting and cool. And I think the last episode, they actually did do yeah. that. You know, they, it, 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 here, even though the stakes seem to be higher, there's a part of me that's like, 
they haven't dramatized the Dean. I mean, like, again, in the book, it's just so much more clear that she is on a thin, thin line, you know, like that she could die at any moment. Like she is also, and she's having to do this thing, which they don't explain in, in, in the TV show, which is fine where she only can go outside a certain number of times. Like, that's why she's marking the number of times she leaves the ship. Right. Because she will blow out all the oxygen that's in the ship with every time she, you know, enters the vacuum. I agree that this is one of the problems, which is, and I I am grateful we talked about this because you as a reader of the books, you know, made me realize, oh, this is about oxygen, that every time she exits the ship, there is some some degree of, of oxygen loss. But that is not something I would have intuited from just watching the show, I guess. In other words, we don't know that the ship isn't still producing oxygen or, you know, that that is basically set, which there's a lack of information there. And while The Expanse assumes its watchers are intelligent, that seemed to require some super intelligence. Yeah, and I think that what that further information does, and if we could get further information here, it would just communicate the stakes a little more. Um, Like right now, I feel like we're not seeing the true stakes. But, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We know she's in danger. We know that there is a um, real puzzle um, that will have to be solved in that her ship is a bomb. And she doesn't know how to communicate that. Although it does seem that maybe she figured something out. So we will see how this plays out, I think, in the next episode. We then, uh, the final scene uh, or final part of the show takes place on the Pella in the section we should now officially title Marco being a dick, which is basically all we see him do. There is a brief scene in which he informs (laughs) Philip that Naomi is still alive, but was clearly trying to escape, engaging in yet more manipulation of Philip, basically saying, see, your mother is now abandoned you twice. Uh, And, and he, you so much that she went into vacuum, you know, to to flee you. This has the desired effect on Philip because Philip gets really, really angry. However, Anna, I'm going to ask you, yes, Marco can clearly push Philip's buttons, but given that Philip had slapped Naomi in a previous episode, what really was he expecting from this? Yeah, this is another place I felt like there was there was a little bit of uh, straying from the from the very good footing this um, plot line is usually on. First of all, yes, I don't think there was enough of Marco being a dick. I, I literally wrote in my notes that there was not enough of that. Like, I don't know, I miss Marco. Like, where is he? Like, I need to, I need some dickishness. Um, also, obviously, I just like looking at Keon Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of looking at him, mm-hmm. I feel like Marco's costumes in this season, I will refer to as costumes. Like, they're just <laughs> weird. Like, they're just like, they're sort of militaristic and... Even though this takes place in the future, they're futuristic. They're, they seem somehow like, well, they're definitely not the scruffy stuff that Belters usually. Are you wear. saying that like, like they don't look if, if there was homemade. if there was a solar system version of GQ, Marco is clearly reading it and buying the stuff that's on on that is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean he looks he looks somehow fancy. Yes, like he's a fancy boy, you know. <laughs> and this particular outfit, I swear to God, it was a spacesuit with a popped collar. <laughs> like it was like. <laughs> <laughs> I also think his hair is getting fluffier, but that's just probably, I don't know, like I just was looking for things to notice. I also will say, as I've said before, I don't trust him a single bit. Right. I don't believe almost anything he says about his feelings. I feel like everything he's done is manipulative. And that might be something that I'm bringing to the table. And it also might be something that, like, if I think about the real world, most people mean what they say at some point. Right. You know? Lying like, constantly is actually even difficult. The most, yes. It takes effort. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And even the most narcissistic, you know, uh, selfish, manipulative person there is has cracks mm-hmm. in their facade. And so... I want to kind of give that little piece of grace <laughs> to Marco. Um, and then I also want to say that his his embrace of Philip is an exact kind of mirror to when Naomi embraced Philip. It's sort of a bookend, yeah. I think. Yeah. The other thing I kept wondering after this scene was, 
there's a weird moment of humor actually in this scene when they both say I'm sorry at the exact same time. I actually did laugh at that moment because it, it's it seems comes out yeah. of nowhere. Except the thing I kept wondering is what was Marco saying I'm sorry for? We don't really know, and he never actually does yeah, apologize I can't... for that or for anything. No, uh, yeah, that I agree. That was sort of a cute scene, and yet I'm not sure what Marco ever apologizes for. Although again. I am perhaps seeing him as more evil than he really is. Oh, no, no, no. Let, let me say, the one, the one answer that I came up with was he was going to apologize to Philip for what Naomi did, which was abandon him yet again. Oh. That's the only way. Oh, you know what? Yeah. I could see it being an I'm sorry that this happened yes. rather than I'm, I'm sorry apology. You know what? That makes much more sense. Mm. Like a sympathetic I'm sorry right. rather than an apologetic I'm sorry. But I don't know. On the other sorry. hand, then Philip says, you don't have anything to apologize for. And he says, well, no, I, I wish that was true or something. And that, you know, which was the one time I actually thought okay. his, then, his facade falls. So I, all right. Well, let's just, like, I think he also could be apologizing. Oh, well, he could apologize for being such a total dick to Philip. <laughs> like when Philip asked to have his own command, like that would legitimately be something to apologize yes. for because it was really unnecessarily cruel mm-hmm. especially from a parent yeah. to a child so mm. but i somehow think that that didn't occur to him yeah, but maybe who knows anyway that is uh <laughs> the end of the plot for which there was a lot of well you know what comes next yes. dan hit hit me on a dan was there IR in this episode? There was, in fact, IR in this episode, Anna. I'm glad you asked. Um, I think you could safely say there were two <laughs> pieces of very important IR. The first bit of international relations is clearly the continued debate on Luna. And the and, and I will say the part of that that really, for some reason, rubbed me the wrong way the most, and I mean this in a good way, I mean, like, I, I, it's a complimentary thing, was when Pastor called the destruction of Palace Station the Palace Initiative, which is to say, I have been around foreign policy circles long enough to see policy wonks dress up what is, for lack of a better way of putting it, horrible decisions or horrible actions in language that somehow makes it seem acceptable. Um, and the Palace Initiative mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that in terms of the destruction of, of Palace Station, which, you know, whatever you think of it, it in the context of the show is just a lot of loss of life. But there really is a serious debate that is had there about essentially winning the hearts and minds of the Belters. And as horrible as the Palace Initiative is, there's also a part of me that is entirely unsure whether Avasarala is correct in her more dovish interpretations of what to do with the belt. So, I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts about this, Anna, but the reason I say this is that clearly both last episode and this episode, there is a running debate on what is the best response that Earth can do to isolate Marco and his faction from the rest of the belt. Because they recognize that if the rest of the belt, you know, sides with Marco... That is uh, significant trouble for Earth. But it is clear also that a lot of, you know, Earth, the Earth Security Council essentially thinks, screw it, they're all already with Marco. Avasarala doesn't believe that, but we've seen enough sections of what's going on in the belt to wonder whether Avasarala might be somewhat too dovish. So, you know, IRL, mm-hmm. I have been against every American <laughs> intervention, <laughs> every American military intervention basically throughout history. Mm-hmm. So I have a bias. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I would add that I have been more supportive of I, interventions, but have also come to regret them. Yes. So I, I am moving more in your direction. Would be the way to put it. <laughs> well, they just, you know, because you are a, at least to some degree a historian mm. as well as a, you know, an a- analyst, like, you know, they just haven't tended to work out very mm. well. So there are reasons to oppose them. And I, I that's what I kept thinking mm. here is one thing I, I thought actually was, in this future Earth, how knowledgeable are they of the kinds of ghastly errors that have been made in foreign policy in the past? Right. Like, I would assert that our Iraq fiasco mm-hmm. would loom large in history. You know, one of the most expensive and deadly mistakes in American foreign policy, right? So it would be interesting. It would be sort of interesting to kind of... because. I, I feel like, well, you, you've been in these debates more. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't history come up? You, you like, think it would, but I'm now going to say something that I a fear might ap- shock and appall you, but I'm going to point out the ways in which the debate on the expanse is somewhat different from, as you point out, debates about U.S. overseas 
military intervention. And the reason why this is going to be appalling is the following. Most U.S. overseas military interventions are not designed to kill everyone in the place they are actually going to occupy. Okay? Say what you will about Iraq. Say what you will about Afghanistan. Say what you will about Libya. The intended goal, and furthermore, even in the execution, the idea was to control and hold territory and have a population wind up support you. That is not what is being debated on Luna. What is being debated is whether things like Ceres or Palace or other outposts should literally be destroyed. There will be no survivors if they attack Ceres. There was a brief moment where, in fact, one of the generals says, what is the goal here? Are we talking about destroying it or are we talking about occupying or what have you? And I got the impression. You know what? I feel like I feel like the analog here then is Hiroshima. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think the analog is. And also, I will say that something you've pointed out, and it's kind of, it is somewhat easy to forget, although this show really tries to put it in the foreground, which is the incalculable loss that they are talking about, which is something you pointed out that I hadn't thought about, again, as a sort of dovish person or had generally sort of knee-jerk dovish views, which is that that level of loss, Mm -hmm. it might be... I'll use the word rational, (laughs) but that's not actually what I mean. It might be somewhat necessary to do the kind of strike that they did. Right. And it is is noteworthy. In In order to, let let me finish. It might be necessary to do the kind of strike they did on Palace in order to keep your population from rebelling, basically, to still to maintain the confidence of your citizens, you might have to have an extreme response, or else you'd get just mass, like, kind of like, we don't, you know, what the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. We need revenge. of something. No, and it is telling, and again, a credit to the expanse that when you see the news of Palace Station being destroyed, it is accompanied by cheers from people on Luna, that it is clear that the decision to destroy Palace was probably viewed as popular on Luna. And I would simply assume um, for those still on Earth, it is relatively popular there as well. And the degree to which, that was the, the other thing, which was, you know, the, in the Security Council meeting, the degree to which, and I, I did love this exchange where Avasaral says we're targeting civilians now, and, and Delgado basically says that's what Marco did, and Avasaral immediately pivots to him and said, is that who our role model is? Is that what we're, you know, who we're comparing ourselves to? Mm-hmm. And that actually does manage to sort of stop the debate somewhat, but... Um, it's an interesting debate. And this is where the Iraq war comes up again, I feel mm-hmm. like, um, or at least for me, like thinking about it, which is, well, this is after 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, George Bush for his many, 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 many flaws. Mm-hmm. The we are not at war with Islam speech is incredibly important. Right. One. It was not a flaw. And I <laughs> will, not a flaw. It was a very positive thing that yeah. he did that he wound up getting getting shit for from really, you know, hawkish people who are like, no, we are war with Islam. And I feel like that is obviously the argument that Avasarala is making is we are not at war with the belt. We are at war with these radicals. Um, Right. And I think that Bush's speech made a difference, by Mm -hmm. the way. Like, if I look at the historical analog, I feel like that speech, he did it really fast, Mm -hmm. I mean, very quickly after Mm 9-11. And I feel like the country was kind of like, huh, you know, Okay. Yeah. Right? Like, but it was accompanied by a strike. That's the thing. Yes. It's like, I think you have to give that speech and commit some kind of retaliatory act in order for that speech to right. land. And to be fair, retaliation was justified and, again, is justified to some extent in the, the Expanse plot. But it points out, I think, the challenges that Avasarala is going to face, presumably going forward, which is Delgado is correct. The Earth does want Belter blood. And at this point, maybe it's not terribly distinguishing in what kind of belter blood. The other problem Avasarala is going to have to face, and indeed we've seen this throughout the belt part of this season, is that there's a degree to which the belt is kind of with, you know, Marco. Or like we're seeing that. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. You yeah, know, you mentioned we, that. We are, we are not seeing the innocent. Right, exactly. And work. which, by the way, does not mean they don't exist. This is partly, you know, because we're only watching oh, I, what yeah. the show says. But like there were people cheering on Palace Station. You know, Marco shows that video. We know that Drummer's faction feels like they have no choice but to ally with Marco. So, you know, there is a degree to which, you know, based on the information we have, Avasarala's contention is one of those things that you very much want to be true and I'm not sure is true or is not as true as she wants it to be. And to that point, her lack of evidence for this, the mass walkout, Mm -hmm. for the podcast listeners, I have a look of extreme doubt on my face. (laughs) 
I, again, as someone who has done the marches, you know, called the representatives, done what I can to prevent politicians from, you know, committing what I think of as immoral acts against innocent people, never had much luck with it. You know, like politicians in America, like there are some, you mm-hmm. know, that especially in a setting like after 9-11 right. or, you know, a- after provocation, yeah. it's really hard to get even civilians, let's face it, to resist that. And while I believe of us are all standing up and walking out, everyone else doing it, I would like you to cite a single example. <laughs> like if you can think of a single time in world history where civilians were able to, by dissent, keep, you know, the military from doing something and keep a leader from doing something. It's not just the military. Like, their civilian leader is on the side of doing the violence. And this may be one of the most unrealistic things in the series, and I am counting Naomi's spacewalk. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, in that unrealistic scene. Okay, so thinking about this, I think the answer is you're correct. There have been, my colleague Elizabeth Saunders at Georgetown has written about when resignations occur and the meaning that they have. And generally speaking, the truth is, at least within the United States, um, officials very rarely resign in protest because of policies. Now, they might threaten to resign. That comes a little, that night might be a little more frequently. And indeed, there have been indications that that's happened. But resignation, particularly with respect to foreign policy, is pretty rare. I mean, generally, the te- and furthermore, the tendency, and we saw this in Vietnam, for example, the, the classic Irving Janus book, Groupthink, um, talks about this, that the few officials during Johnson's Vietnam War deliberations that did raise protests began to be sort of isolated and caricatured. Like George Ball, for example, was treated as, okay, George, why don't you lodge your predictable objection to why we're expanding the war in Vietnam? He would do so, and it was sort of easily dismissed. There have been officials who have occasionally resigned um, in protest because of certain foreign policies, and we saw that all the way up through the Trump administration. Usually, however, they are not Mm -hmm. cabinet-level officials. That is extremely rare. And indeed, the only example that comes to mind is not a good one, which is Cyrus Vance. I mean, uh, Cy Vance's resignation from the Carter administration. I mean, well, shit. Very few people resigned after Trump instigated an insurrection. Yeah. Like, well, you that's know, different. It's just not. That, no, that really <laughs> I mean, is different. I mean, well, if you're going to resign in protest, yeah. that would be a good. That would you know. Except there were two weeks left in I the term, like, well, and like I, I always thought. Well, well, and actually, you could argue. Mm-hmm. That resignation at that point was the less honorable thing to do because they could have invoked the 25th Amendment and they were getting out of that particular decision by resigning. In any case, I I I will add I am somewhat, you know, like I feel kind of proud of myself for being (laughs) able to like intuit the fact that that was very unrealistic. I was kind of hoping that you would say, oh, no, Anna, there have been all these examples. It, they are <laughs> extremely rare, particularly for <laughs> civilians. And I would also add that, by the way, the general logic about why people don't resign, even if they object to a policy, is the belief that if they resign, someone worse will take their place. That they they believe that if they stay right. on board, oh. they can moderate, you know, and prevent oh. even worse things from happening. And to be fair, that's not entirely uh, If I may use my favorite phrase that I know you also yeah. love, there the adults in the room, yes, band. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, Taking care of a toddler, yeah. <laughs> let's say. So moving on from, from <laughs> Luna to Winnipesaukee, the other, I think, interesting IR component here was the basic debate between Clarissa and Eric um, as to whether or not they should take on, befriend the staff, befriend others, and help them escape, or in Eric's words, literally, fuck it, kill them all. You know, what do we care about that? And there's an interesting little debate and also a sort of callback to a previous to previous episodes where Clarissa basically argues, look, tribes are shrinking. And when tribes shrink, that leads to sort of anarchy. What if we grow our tribe? That might actually be a better way of, of doing it. And, you know, while she clearly sort of gets the way on Winnipesaukee, there is legitimate reasons to wonder whether that was the right move at the time. Yeah. Um, I feel like the show kind of pulled a little bit of, um, you know, uh, magic <laughs> to make it all kind of work out the way that it did. You know, just how big is that shuttle? That's one question yeah, I that have. Yeah, was, that was right? something that occurred like, to me. Yeah. 
it's sort of referenced and then in a, a very uh, uh, unusual situation for The Expanse. It's not really addressed later on. Like, there's just like, oh, it's a short trip. It is objectively, I think, a bad idea to let the Pinkwater forces just leave. Mm-hmm. They all but said, all but put up a sign to say, we are coming back to kill you later. Right. <laughs> you know? Um. There, there was an interesting social media exchange about this, by the way, because the James S.A. Corey Twitter handle, uh, you know, the the two authors of the, the books, essentially got a lot of pushback from people as they were watching this episode saying, come on, why don't you kill them when this starts? And, and his answer seemed to be, look, there were a lot more of the security guys that like, while we only saw a couple of them, you know, clearly based on what happens later in the episode, they had a significant amount of firepower. Trying to take them out right then and there would have probably been a bad move. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that that scene kind of serves to illustrate Clarissa's evolution or return, depending on we don't know her very well before, you know, she has um, before she's on her mercenary mission to, to kill Jim Holden. We don't really get a lot of who she was before that. I think it's sort of a chance for Clarissa to to make her argument. And it's funny because actually I'm rereading The Stand mm-hmm. right now and there is spoken by characters in the stand to kill any more people after this much loss of life is just the gravest kind of sin. Like to, Mm. to actively choose to kill more people after we have lost millions and millions and millions. um, Which is essentially almost exactly what Clarissa says. I mean, yeah. 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 I I, I thought Mm -hmm. of that and I think she's right. I think actually, it makes more logical sense to kill them, but I think that Clarissa's argument is very good to say we need to wait to have an excuse to kill them. <laughs> I, I will go even, <laughs> which is essentially what she I says. I will go even I mean, further than this, which is to say that I, partly the logic depends upon whether or not you think you are playing. Is this game going to end relatively quickly, or do you think there's, in the language of game theory, is it iterated? In other words, do we see multiple rounds? And the moment you think that there might be a future. Clarissa is right that, generally speaking, if you cooperate with others who are like-minded cooperators, you are going to do better than those people who ordinarily defect. So there is actually a rational strategy to this. The problem is is that there is a way in which if you're planning on leaving the island and everyone knows that you're planning on leaving, you're in endgame. And in the endgame, there are valid reasons to defect. And that was the one thing that I I do wonder about. All right. I think our international relations portion of the program uh, is pretty much, I think we've talked yes. it out. <laughs> we worked through some stuff. We went through some stuff. And we're going to get a little deeper into some of those things when we explore the themes of this episode. Right. And I think I get to, to introduce the first theme. And the first theme, and, and this really was the, the one thing that just stuck with me throughout this entire episode, was what exactly does it mean to be rational? For every partisan we killed, we made ten more. Sometimes you gotta stop thinking about something to figure it out. But we can't let emotion make these choices. We have to be rational and objective. I have to say that throughout the entire season of The Expanse, that that line from Pastor might be the best written line of the entire show. Because he's saying in sober tones that we have to be rational and objective. And this is essentially code for we have to be unethical or amoral. And also, I would like to point out that in saying we can't let emotions make these choices, mm-hmm. he is actually letting emotions make these choices. And actually, it just, it just like, occurred to me, this is also a callback weirdly to Marco's line to Philip about this. He does the same thing. Oh, wow. He says the exact same thing right. earlier about like we can't let emotion guide us when he's clearly letting emotion guide him. And and so in some ways, again, we are seeing multiple times people say things that are clearly wrong. And either they're they're knowingly making a lie or they are unknowingly making a lie. And in some ways unknowingly lying on this is worse because you actually think that you're you're doing the right thing when in fact you are not. Well I was gonna say it's also a callback to toxic masculinity <laughs> because the people who say that mm. <laughs> all the people who say we can't let emotions make these choices are men. Mm who are kind of projecting, you know, this traditional understanding of gender um, characteristics or gender norms and, you know, presenting themselves as the rational actors. You know, we are the rational ones right here. I know what rationality is. I'm a man. I can make this decision. And in fact, you know, he is saying this to Vassarala. 
And I think that matters. And I it's do. not a coincidence that, um, that the first person who res- resigns after Avasaral is also a woman, I would add. I believe there's actually several yes, women yes. Um, that resign. And I, I want to believe that this is a choice or at least if, it, if it's not a choice, it's actually also interesting right. if, if it wasn't a conscious choice by the show. I, I like this observation. Yeah, but, and the other thing I, w- I would say is that, again, the, the, the counterpoint to that pastor statement is the, the statement by Amos that acknowledges he figured something out without thinking about it almost. The idea that, you know, you often arrive at the solution by sort of putting a problem aside for one second and then, you know, sort of almost letting your unconscious brain uh, taking over and figuring out what was going on. And I would argue that one of the things that makes this a callback to toxic masculinity as well as a lie is that actually sometimes we also let emotions guide our choices and that's okay. Right. Clarissa is letting her emotions guide her yes. choices. You know? Yes, which is again isn't to say the one the one defense I feel like that is really good for the palace initiative mm-hmm. is one that's somewhat emotional, which is that that need to take some kind of action so your populace um, doesn't get right. restive, right? I, I, You're making that decision using emotional calculus. And I guess the one thing I would close with this on is that, again, I don't mean to speak ill of rationality. Uh, you know, I, as a political scientist, I very often <laughs> literally made arguments grounded in what is called rational choice theory. So I am sympathetic to the argument that, you know, thinking rationally is good. But that said, I think what this this sequence does is demonstrate that very often when people say they're being rational, they're not. That there is a difference between actually acting rationally and saying that you're acting rationally. And God knows how many times I have seen debates in this country right now in which someone claims they're being rational when in fact they're just being a dick. Yes, well said. <laughs> and again, you say dick and I say there's a reason we use that term yes, sometimes. Fair enough. <laughs> Anna, I believe you have a theme that you want to talk All right. about? I have a theme. It is relates to something that The Expanse is interested in, has been interested in in its entire season, its entire run of the show, which is the idea of starting over, um, the idea of changing. Can you become something you are not? This is the most pathetic shakedown I've ever seen. You must be new at this. I spent my whole life learning how to survive in Baltimore. Where did Timmy find you? serving a life sentence for multiple homicides. Did you know what coming back to Baltimore has taught me? What? No one starts over. Because no one really leaves anything behind. I am proud of the fact that most of these lines are funny and seem like they might be throwaway. <laughs> I think they're all pretty important. My favorite is actually the Tene wa gut, which is something Carol says to the crew of the DeWalt, which means good hunting uh, in Belter. Mm. And literally, because I'm watching with the closed captions on, when the crew responds, <laughs> and you might have thought to yourself, that seems a little soft. That's not, that doesn't seem quite as enthusiastic. In the closed captioning, it says, weekly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Tene wa <laughs> And and what I think that fits in here is can you be something you're right. not? You know, can can you become the kind of hunters that Marco wants you to become? Also, Eric's line about the most pathetic shakedown he's ever seen made me laugh yes. out loud and is sort of a double way of saying can you become something you're not, which is um, the, the pink water folks are trying to do something they're not used to doing, but also... All of those folks from Baltimore are trying to do something they're not used to doing. Right, and there's a there's a literally a great conversation between Amos and Hutch about this. Exactly, yes. <laughs> right, and then of course um, they do get several laugh lines out of the fact that Clarissa does not seem like she was probably in jail <laughs> for mass murder. But I also laugh. Props to Nadine Nicole, the actress who plays Clarissa Mao. I, I, you know, we we haven't really talked about her all that much but i I, i've enjoyed her run on this and that line reading of i served multiple homicides might have been the funniest thing she's done on the show i don't have a quote to represent this but i do think it's an example it's also the scene that you cite where um the servants serve it's not explained exactly why this is happening (laughs) and it's sort of alluded to that they recognize clarissa Mm -hmm. But they fall back into their roles. Like, for whatever reason it's happening, they just revert back to the thing that they're used to doing, which 
they wouldn't. I mean, it doesn't seem like they have to no, do that. No, so I read that a different like, way. I read that. So, th- okay, this is interesting. That, that's a fair way. I understand your reading. My reading was they recognized that the Baltimore crew was literally about to help them get off the planet. In other words, Amos and Clarissa are and Eric are providing valuable services that will allow them to live longer. And I think by them doing what they are actually good at doing, in some ways, this is sort of primitive barter and exchange. In other words, if if the Baltimore crew is helping them, fine. Then they get to do, by, by cooking meals for them, by doing what they're good at, they are providing a useful service and, and I think, justifying the fact that they're, they're going to get a ride to Luna. An exchange of surplus yes. labor. Yes. Um, that is a good read, I think. Another thing I want to point out is is that can't really be represented by a quote is the fact that it's Clarissa that is the moral center mm-hmm. of the show or of this arc for a while. And then she kills like a dozen people with her bare hands. Although um, it is worth it. Again, <laughs> this was a smart decision by the director. It is noteworthy that we don't see that on camera. That was the right decision to make. We don't see it. It's also if we care about the characters, it's justified, right? Like. Uh, they they attacked i would like to point out i think the expanse is usually a little better at not red shirting people mm-hmm. you know like they tend to recognize that everyone has a story that even those pink water guards were doing some things to save themselves much as amos has done right but so, uh, I, so it was interesting the reaction i had when we first see them show up when they're saying we're gonna have to like commandeer your helicopter and all your food and material and so on and so forth it was like okay you set up some people that can be killed nicely you know like like it, in other words it was to the extent that you- except it's literally what amos does it's literally what amos does to the survivalist yes. in the woods that's correct that is a fair, no, no, that's a fair point. And perhaps, again, the distinction is, is that this time they don't kill them immediately. In other words, they let them, they kill them in self-defense, which is... <laughs> immediately doing a lot of work there. I know, I know. But, they, but in other words, <laughs> I, and, and I think the, the James's Corey Twitter feed pointed this out, that had they left 15 minutes earlier, there would have been, you know, the private security guards would have been fine. In other words, like, that weirdly, part of this was a question of timing. And of course, that said, you know... You don't air a 10-minute sequence that is a gripping firefight if you do that. And that was a rather gripping part of the show. So, yeah. Yeah, we didn't touch on this yet. I thought that that firefight was really, really good. I I was surprised by the degree to which I was, like, um, you know, caught Mm -hmm. up in it. Like, I'm not usually, like, a action movie person unless, like, I'm in a theater. Sometimes, like, you know, if you're in a theater, you can really get caught up. Um, to have that on the small screen, literally on a small screen for me, because I was watching it on my laptop, and still get caught up in it is cool. And also, I did have the thought taking me a little bit out mm-hmm. of it, where I was like, I bet they had so much fun. <laughs> I bet this was really fun to shoot. It was a well done. This is going to sound like a weird <laughs> comparison, but the thing that it reminded me of was the hard home rest, uh, episode of Game of Thrones, where it mm. was, there were similar moments in that. It was what turned out to be a ex- very exciting action sequence where you weren't expecting an exciting action sequence. And in some ways, that's what makes it all the better. Because, like, you know, you're, you're not yeah. thinking that there's going to be some huge firefight right there. And the, and the same thing happens with the, the private security. And you're like, oh, wow, this is bigger than, oh, okay, oh, wow, this is really, you know. And so, again, it's very rare that you surprise viewers on television. And I did appreciate that part of it. Right. The last thing I want to say about this theme is when Amos says no one starts over because no one really leaves anything behind. I want to point out that those are two separate ideas that don't necessarily um, congrue. Um, (laughs) No one starts over is one Mm -hmm. thought, right? No one really leaves anything behind is another thought. They They aren't about the same thing, right? Like, what does starting over have to do with leaving things behind? Like, I guess it depends on what you mean by starting over. Well, so it, it, they do have to do. They they do have to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they do have to do with each other, which is that I think that you can kind of see here something that the show plays with, which is that you can become someone mm-hmm. different, right? You can find new moral footing, like Amos. You can literally change your body, then kind of change it back, like yeah. Clarissa. But you can't leave things behind. Mm -hmm. You can't disown your past. You can't, like, ignore it. You have to come to grips 
comfortable with it. You can't just run away. And that's what Amos discovers in this arc. I think that's fair, although obviously people can try to do those things. It just doesn't work out, I think would be the way to, oh, sure. to put it. So, yes. Yeah. No, that's, I think, what the show's yeah. argument is that you can't just start right. over. Or that, and Clarissa is a great right. example. And if, so I think that would be the better way to put it. That the only way you can, uh, paradoxically, the only way you can start over is to recognize what you are bringing to the table, what you are bringing with you. And on that deep thought, let's go some, to some less deep thoughts <laughs> and enter the area that we call the debris field. Dan, do you have any like, you know, bits and bobs that you would like to to cover before we end? We we covered a lot of this already. The only thing I think I would I would want to add was is this what future memorials will look like? I have to say it was it was I, like you. I was affected by watching that sort of cylindrical list of names, and it was a uh, it was a surprisingly moving and yet entirely futuristic i guess in a good way you know kind of memorial and i kept wondering is that what future memorials will look like will there be one devoted to victims of the pandemic that would look similar to that i yeah we strenuously um try to avoid commenting too much on current events i will say i'm really glad you you mentioned that because a conversation I believe you and I had offline, um, or I may have mentioned to you, that the Biden inauguration got to me for many reasons. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really I found powerful about it was the acknowledgement of the loss that we have experienced. And to, it, and, and it, of course, it threw into sharp relief the idea that that had not been done at a national level before. That... We had not had a communal recognition of grief. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was, it made me a little angry that we hadn't had it before, but I found it very powerful. And in some ways, again, it ties back to your previous point of the only way you get to start anew is by acknowledging what has happened before. So, yes, that was, that well, was, uh, so in some ways you already preempted my answer, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see what what future morals <laughs> look like. Anna, do you have any uh, elements of uh, bits and bobs or debris? I'm going to reiterate the DeWalt stuff just doesn't make sense to me. That bothers me. Jim Holden, not much of a presence this mm-hmm. season. Uh, just sort of interesting. I wonder if that will be made up for. I think it's it's obviously conscious choice. And it, I think, reflects some things that have happened with Jim's journey on the show. Which is to say he's become more... He's He's had some acceptance and some growth around not being the hero of the story all the time. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and yeah, but that said, we're, we're now on multiple episodes where he's in the Rossi and sort of, I will, look this way. Very yeah, perfunctory. And I guess the way I would put it is that I will, you know, in terms of, of what I'm looking forward to, we can segue nicely into the closing. What am I looking forward to in, in the last episode of this season? I actually want to see more Holden, which is not something I always say, but I've missed him a little bit. <laughs> what the graduate seminar at the end of the show is not enough for you yeah we can talk about actually as a reader of the books i, I have stuff that I, I feel has needs to be addressed um and i will try to pull off this joke mars mars i'm trying to do the bueller joke maybe that doesn't translate but we have not seen much of mars like it's just it's just kind of off as you will it's off the radar off the scope where it wants to be you know like (laughs) there is actually kind of a parallel to what might be actually happening in the plot in a way which is everyone's forgotten about and indeed we even see that in a little bit we hadn't talked about which is we discover that the free navy has actually had a engagement with both un ships and martian ships a unn cruiser is destroyed we hear the martian frigate might be lost but even there it's like not entirely sure and so like I'm just waiting for the Martian shoe to drop. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of loose ends at the end of this season. I, I I don't think it is possible to tie them all up, all, all the things that we're looking at. And I don't mind Right. I'd actually be worried if they... show, especially I would be show. worried if they did tie them all up, yeah. because if they did, that would require forced movement of the plot that would be really not Expanse-like. And it would worry mm-hmm. me that they are not renewed for another season. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mind the loose ends, um, even if they feel, you know, unsatisfying sort of on a personal level in some way. I also, it makes me even more excited for next season. 
So as we draw uh, uh, to an end of this episode, as we exit the debris field, Dan, we have to do some cleanup here. I would like to thank Karen Qualley for editing the show and Liam McMahon for doing our social media. Liam has said he's moving on to bigger and better um, vistas, which he deserves. He's a great guy, and you know, he's been basically doing me favors for a long time. Bon voyage, so, Liam. Thank you, Liam. And, oh, Yes. Be speaking of getting paid more for what you're doing, yeah, Dan, people can pay us people, if they want to. People can. Speaking <laughs> of, of you know lucrative activities, this is not one of those lucrative activities, and we are totally okay with that. We are doing this as a labor of love. Um, but if you want to send us money, that would be great. Uh, we are also determined to keep the show free, but by sponsoring the show, you're making it easier for us to keep the quality high. And in return, you will get preview content and the ability to suggest future topics. Bum, bum, bum. As anyone listening to this show knows, and we have discussed, The Expanse is coming to an end. We have vague plans. The best kind of plans, really. <laughs> uh, vague ones. We are going to do an episode just sort of looking back at the whole season. And I think we will be doing our first AMA mm -hmm. after that, where we open up conversation with our patrons to talk specifically about season five of The Expanse. Now, where will we go next? Whee! Dan, I'm shrugging my shoulders. Some, I guess sometimes I'm not actually good at podcasting. Um, <laughs> that is a lie. You are very good at podcasting. We are looking, we are looking uh, for ideas. We have some that I think will amaze and delight people. There have been many requests. Some of them, we've gotten very strong messages uh, about a few different places we mm -hmm. could go. And I think we're gonna we're gonna choose a popular one, and then I think we're gonna choose something that just Dan and I are interested. But it's totally awesome. <laughs> now, if you want to, yes, if you want to weigh in, uh, you can go to the Patreon page. You don't have to be a patron to to post on the message boards there. You can also tweet at us. We are at underscore space the nation. Um, that is also our Instagram handle. But I will admit, we're not on Instagram that much. We will let you know more when we know more. Until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>